0: friends and welcome to Smart Loving Conversations, the place where we discuss all things Catholic marriage. I'm Francine Parola.
1: And I'm Laura Kane from Smart Loving, a global network that accompanies couples as we together explore how to maximise the good times and learn from the bad ones. With our guests, we
0: explore love, marriage, family and living the Catholic faith, setting our sights on heaven while keeping our feet on the ground or in the mud and muck that life throws our way. We've been there and so have our guests.
1: Join us for better and for worse as we dive deep into real life conversations of struggle and triumph.
0: Welcome, friends and listeners of Radio Maria Australia. Our smart, loving conversation today is about marriage in the wilderness. We're entering the season of Lent, so it's a good time to reflect on how we as married couples can use this season to strengthen our bond and our faith. So, Laura, welcome. How's your walk with the Lord been these past days?
1: Hi, Fran. Yeah, it's been good. I, I'm i 24 weeks pregnant, so yeah, my back is starting to give out as my tummy gets bigger and as the baby boy inside me gets bigger, so I've been just trying to offer up pain to the Lord and trying not to be grumpy and and grateful for this season so Mm. that's where I am at the moment and just entering into Lent as well I can hopefully offer up some of that that suffering and um, connect with Christ in his suffering.
0: Yeah I mean pregnancy is a beautiful time but it's really hard on the body and so it's a kind of it's not a bad sort of penitential type of experience so you're, you're in good good company for the next yes. 40 days anyway for me laura i've been reading the discernment of spirits in marriage by father timothy gallagher he's a world leader in the ignatian spiritual exercises i've also been listening to a podcast that he he's done and it's the whole thing's based on the spiritual rules of Saint ignatius but he's used A kind of a couple as a bit of a case study to illustrate how these rules can sometimes appear in marriage. It's been really quite helpful and it's given me insight into why I sometimes feel stuck or stagnant in my faith. So it's been, it's also been quite helpful in preparing this topic because it relates quite well to this idea of being in the wilderness sometimes in our marriage. So should we dive into it?
1: Yeah, let's dive into our
0: topic. Marriage in the wilderness and it's a perfect season. But it's not just about land, listeners. Um, the principles can apply at any time of year because the reality is, is that our marriages can enter into a wilderness kind of season or a wilderness period at any time in our marriage. And so it's kind of, there's some general principles here that we want to explore. And the first one is just this idea of the reality of seasons in our life. We all have experienced it. There's been seasons of growth and flourishing, good vibes and energy. There's positivity and optimism. We have a, sort of a feeling of upward motion and a progression. And then there's also seasons of stagnation and dryness where we feel despondent and discouraged and we feel like we're backtracking or losing ground. And it can happen in lots of areas, not just our marriage. It can happen in our professional life, in our spiritual life, in our family life, and, of course, also in our marriage. And I think what's interesting to me, Laura, is that it's not always synchronised across all of those. So a professional life might be going great guns, But our marriage is really dry. So we can be having a season of flourishing in one area, but a season of poverty or dryness in the other. For many of us, our private life might be doing quite well, but our professional life will be stagnant and we'll be experiencing frustration professionally. So the idea of seasons, I guess, is that, you know, they happen, they're inevitable. They can be triggered by an external event or an internal event, a sickness or a change of life, a job loss, you know, death of a close friend or family member. Um, some crisis or trauma into the marriage. Lots of different things can trigger them or even just stages of life that just emerge and happen upon us. Midlife is the classic one and that was a really good sort of reflection time for me to consolidate my understanding of this whole idea of kind of seasons. There's not only physiological changes as women particularly go through midlife with menopause. But there was also stresses on our marriage, with Byron very having a very intense period in his professional life with a lot of travelling, so we had a lot of separation. There was a bit of letting go of some of my dreams, particularly to do a doctorate, and also letting go of some of the expectations that I'd had of Byron that had kind of sort of been sitting just in in my consciousness. And really in midlife they kind of bubbled up to the surface. So I found I was dealing with a lot of resentment and blame. And so part of my despair, if you like, or difficulty in that season was was really a, a long history or a long kind of accumulation of sort of blame thoughts that I'd been carrying against Byron and, and particularly around us, you know, some differences in values around how we placed our priorities and family life and so on. So it was a really, it was a difficult time in our marriage and it coincided, of course, with that physiological changes of midlife. So it had all the emotional stuff and the sleep disruption. So it was quite an intense season of uh, difficulty. In our marriage. Praise be to God. It looks like it's in, the, it's in our history now and we've come into a more joyful summer season, if you like. But what about you, Laura? Have you had an experience of a wilderness season in your marriage and how'd you go about or how'd you grow through it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are about to celebrate 10 years of marriage. So over that 10 years, we've had seasons during that period. So Big wilderness seasons for Joe and I has been many years of infertility and struggling to build our family and to have children. And I know so many married couples are in a similar position. And so now we're in a different season where I'm actually pregnant and we're expecting a child. But just during those years of having to go for tests and tests and more tests and the expense of that with just no real results, it was just unexplained, this question mark of unexplained infertility. So that was really tough. And definitely a wilderness experience. So one of your questions was, friend, well, how did we get through it? And I think we would often ask each other, well, what, what is God trying to teach us through this cross? And going to mass, reading the word of God, hearing the word of God, reading great books, reading the stories of saints, also like speaking with other couples who are also carrying the same cross and seeing how they what they were doing to use up their time and gifts and talents (laughs) and be fruitful in other ways. I remember hearing that you can be spiritually fruitful in your marriage in other ways than just um, having children. For example, we've been a sponsor couple for many years accompanying engaged couples through as they prepare for the sacrament of marriage. So that was we had the opportunity to do that because we had the time and we had the energy and we weren't you know bathing kids at nighttime or doing all the weekend sports that come with children. So we were able to kind of serve in that way, which was so powerful and really great for our marriage and strengthened our own marriage. Another example was my my neighbor down the street actually has five children. So Joe and I would often help her and her husband. Joe like installed some shelves in their garage and I was often helping her to declutter the home of extra toys that had accumulated through you know Christmases and birthdays and then well she she knows where
0: to send those toys now doesn't she I know
1: (laughs) yeah we've been gifted so many so many secondhand items which has just been so beautiful to prepare for our own child so, just yeah, helping her get through what seemed like a never ending, just repeating list of doing the same thing again, like mountains of laundry for the five children, it allowed me to see actually the grass isn't always greener and they also have this cross of like hyper fertility. And so, just having to be seeing how she had to be faithful to doing the same things over and over again, whether it's making the 150th sandwiches for school lunch or picking up the same toy again and again day after day when it's been left in the wrong spot. It would lead me to come home to our own calm, peaceful, clean house um, Mm. and count my blessings and be grateful. And we know that the psychology of that, counting your blessings and being grateful for what you do have instead of focusing on your lack, there's powerful psychology involved with that. So, and now it's like the grass is always greener. Right now, I'm 24 weeks pregnant, and this is a time of wilderness when, I, you know, I'm, it's, I'm physically exhausted. Some days, by the end of the day, my back is hurting, and there are all sorts of weird things happening to my body. <laughs> so, I'm learning to have to be married now when I'm tired and in pain. <laughs> the last 10 years, I've just been been able to. Yeah. So how can I be kind and show Joe my love when I'm feeling grumpy and I'm in pain? And that's an opportunity for growth for me at the moment. Yeah, wow. That's big. I just
0: want to reflect a bit more on, um, I think often part of what makes those wilderness seasons so difficult is we become a little bit introspective and it, we focus on the lack and the negativity, as you were saying, which is a really good insight. And we forget that every person's life is a mixture of of good and bad, of of joy and struggle. But when we almost make our wilderness season sometimes worse for ourselves because we get this introspective reinforcement of, oh, it's so miserable and poor me and the self-pity kicks in and we end up in this sort of negative cycle of self-pity, which makes it worse than it needs to be. And so that just golden principle of being of service, of almsgiving, of reaching out to others can be so healthy for us to just give us a bit of a perspective check. I remember somebody, one of the priests, saying to me that when the priest comes to him and is sort of feeling really discouraged and a bit down in the dumps and sorry for himself, he sends him over to the cathedral to hear confessions for a day. He says that usually gives him a bit of a perspective (laughs) check on his life. And that's not to say that our priests aren't. Carrying a great burden and very legitimate issues and things like that, but it's just it's the principle of how do we fortify ourselves and build some kind of that spiritual resilience so that we can weather those difficult seasons where we're feeling like it's all just really hard going, like we're wading through. Concrete and we don't know which, whether we're going to come out of it or when we're going to come out of this season of difficulty. That's perhaps the time when we really want to lean into faith, yeah. which uh, you tapped into so beautifully there. If we view those seasons as a crisis, you know, if you're in a crisis or a sorrow as a punishment, or if we let ourselves, our minds go down a pathway of questioning why God would let this happen to us or does God really love me or is God even with me in this difficulty? we can end up becoming like the, the drowning man that just goes under and, and loses it. The thing is that I've learned over many such seasons is to lean into them, to, to lean into God at these times, to hit, get down on my knees rather than turn away from God. Because that's often what happens, right? But it gets really difficult. We can often blame God for it or we can just assume that God doesn't care. And so that invitation to lean into God. And I'm just reminded of this two people that I've been walking with over the last few years, a husband, two different marriages, a husband and a wife, and each of them whose spouses have chosen to leave them. And instead of retaliating, both of these two people, they've leaned into their faith they've, and actually experienced a revival in their faith life, that they were perhaps prior to that when everything seemed to be fine in their marriages, they were a little bit complacent about their faith. And one of them even said to me that, you know, well, I haven't been able to save my marriage, but you've helped me find God. You've saved my faith. And that to me is just such a beautiful gift that I've been able to help him to discover a new depth to his faith. And, you know, the whole story's not over. Every crisis in a marriage is a is a growth opportunity. And, and in their particular case, the story's not over. They're holding, I suppose, the remnants of their marriage really reverently, keeping the space open. There's no guarantees the spouse will come back, or if they will be able to successfully reestablish a a healthy relationship. If they do, there's a lot of wounded there and and betrayal, and yeah, the trust is pretty shattered. But they're not. They're living their life. They're pursuing the Lord. They're kind of focusing on what they can influence rather than what they can't. And I just think that they're both in their own way really great witnesses to me and examples of using a wilderness season as a springboard into something better, particularly in terms of the spiritual life of, of using that. Not One of them described it as, I don't want to waste the pain. And so she keeps surrendering the pain that she has experienced in her marriage. To the Lord and, and is turning that pain into something fruitful. It's like the fertilizer she's putting on the soil of her spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And I, I often reflect on that phrase from her. I don't want, I don't want to waste the pain, but mm-hmm. this pain has a purpose that it can be good. It can be, it can, growth can come from this. Yeah. Um, really inspirational.
1: Even as you're saying that, Fran, I'm imagining this like tree trunk with these like deep roots going deep into the ground that can access this living water of spiritual joy, even though the storm, it's it's an anchor point, right? And you've got the storm of life and the storm of the season. But if you're anchored in your faith and you've used that pain to go deeper into, you're not going to be drifted by the current. Yeah, that's true. I'm reminded of so many of the saints. Um, we, when we were talking earlier,
0: Laura, you were mentioning Mary McKillop, but I think of, say, Mother Teresa. When after she died and her diaries or her prayer journals were published and it was like all this shock horror around the world because it was not now known that she had had years of like a spiritual desert, like a wilderness experience of spiritual desolation and the secular world saw it as, as her, she having lost her faith, but she hadn't lost her faith. She had leaned even further to that and she remained faithful to the Lord and been obedient to his call in her life, even though she wasn't experiencing any sense of spiritual closeness to him. And in some ways I think the Lord allows us to have some of those experiences because it's easy to love someone when you're getting all the positive feedback and the positive kickbacks and you know, stuff like that early stage of our, our marriages and our romance when we're in love, we've got all those Biochemical, the neurotransmitters floating around in our brain, we're getting all this really nice, euphoric, positive feedback that's easy to love when you've got that happening and it's much harder to love when those kind of euphoric feelings are no longer there. But that's when actually the real love starts to take root because love needs to be something, not just something we do because we're getting the positive feedback, but something we choose to do even though there's absolutely nothing in it for us. And I think that's what Mother Teresa, when I read that story and that reflection on her journals, that was what that just brought home so clearly for me.
1: Yeah, and as I was saying to you before we started recording, Fran, when we were talking about, about this St Mary of the Cross, our first Australian saint, she had just trying to follow the Holy Spirit and God's calling in her life so many things times where I'm sure she was in the wilderness she was excommunicated from the church and she would have just been thinking how is God with me during this this wilderness experience and again like Mother Teresa she just stayed faithful and continues to educate the poor of Australia and do what she believed God was calling her to do. Again, in her own life, physical pain as well. It sounds like from reading her story, she had some female issues going on, whether it was very painful periods. I'm not sure if it was endometriosis doesn't really say that, but it sounded like as a woman reading it, I'm like, she, it sounds like she had some female problems going on there and just to have to battle with all of that, you know, as a religious sister but just staying faithful and two great female saints come yes. to mind. They weren't married, but you can see the parallels of um, of marriage with, with religious life as well. And Sorry, at the ma- end of the day, it's all about relationship, isn't it? So whatever our stage of life, it's the, the
0: wilderness often happens around our intimate relationships, whatever the nature of those
1: relationships are. Yes. Well, let's unpack this more after the break, and we'll see you in a minute. It is easy to get discouraged when there is disconnection in our marriage. Arguments over petty incidents, too busy to romance each other, crowded with other responsibilities. All marriages go through periods where we need a breakthrough in our relationship. The Smart Loving Breakthrough course will teach you how arguments happen, how to manage them better or avoid them altogether. Understand your internal drivers and how your spouse is triggering you process the pain of past injuries making you stronger and less reactive visit smartloving.org forward slash breakthrough the smart loving breakthrough course can be done by a couple or by an individual who is in a marriage that is in distress visit smartloving.org forward slash breakthrough to enroll today gift certificates are also available should you want to purchase the course for a friend or family member Welcome back friends, you're listening to Smart Loving Conversations on Radio Maria Australia. We've been talking about marriage in
0: the wilderness and listeners, you might think or presume that we're talking about other people's marriages or marriages in crisis, but that's actually not what the topic's about. We're talking about seasons in every marriage where it's a wilderness period now what we want to explore it a little bit further in the light of the time jesus spent in the wilderness and draw out some of the spiritual ideas that are contained in those famous scripture passages we just started the season of Lent. the first sunday the gospel in lead always tells of jesus in the wilderness for 40 days where he's fasting he's alone and then the devil tempts him and from this we get the idea of the Lent period itself of 40 days I want to just kind of draw out three points, so much you can say about these scripture passages, but just want to highlight three ideas. One is just to reflect a little bit on the context and think about what came immediately before He went into the desert and that was Jesus' baptism where he goes down to the Jordan River and John the Baptist is there baptising people and he baptises Jesus. And importantly, there's this manifestation of the Father. The heavens open, they hear the voice of the Father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's a really powerful affirmation of belonging to the father and in some ways i think that's kind of like the cry of every human heart to be affirmed and known and to belong to our heavenly father our creator father the second point i think is this idea that the spirit led him into the wilderness that there was god's hand in it it wasn't just that he was led or tempted to go to the desert the spirit led him into the wilderness and that God was with him throughout those challenges, and God is with us in our challenges as well by extension of that. Sometimes he's leading us into these difficult periods, and I guess the question for us to reflect on there is can we trust him, even though we might not be aware of his presence with us, but can we trust that he is leading us in these difficult times? And the third idea that I thought was kind of interesting to note on is that he wasn't tempted by the devil, until after the 40 days so he'd been fasting for 40 days he'd been alone and isolated he was really at his weakest at that point and what I take out of that is this idea that the, the devil is really pretty clever he targets us when he knows we're weak and the temptation always is to withdraw from relationship with the father um, and that was what he really was tempting Christ with is to doubt in the love of the Father and of course as we know in the story that Christ stands firm he doesn't doubt the love of the Father he's, he's just come from that context of that powerful manifestation in his baptism and so he manages to resist the temptations of the devil
1: yeah I, and I'm just going back to what I've mentioned before that you know your personal faith during these times of temptation or desolation or that dormy season can be the anchor that keeps you from from drifting and, and not to doubt God's love for you. It's important to note, like, I, I am experiencing a wilderness period here. I'm in the desert now, just as Christ was, and he overcame it and, and so can I. Have faith that you can, you'll come out the other end of that period. Yeah. When I was reflecting on this, one of the things that struck
0: me really for the first time was some of the parallels in our own marriage in this sequence of events. And so, in some ways, the baptism of Jesus was a bit like our wedding day where we said, Baron and I said to each other, this is my beloved spouse in whom I am well pleased. It was this public declaration of belonging to each other. And so, it just struck me of that kind of we don't often think of the baptism of Jesus as having a relevance to our marriage, but in some ways it, it was. And it's the foundation really of our marriage going forward is this wedding day and public declarations of devotion and commitment to each other that, um, you know, become such a powerful foundation upon which we can face challenges further down the track.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking when you said public displays of belonging to each other, we've just had Valentine's Day been and gone and you just see on social media and Facebook all the couples taking pictures of themselves or sharing their own wedding photos or milestones you know that acknowledgement publicly of whether they've just gone from being single to being in a relationship changing that relationship profile or now we're engaged here's pictures of our wedding day happy valentine's day my love and a little public tribute to one another that's interesting to reflect on you know, the baptism of yeah. Jesus and like God saying publicly from the clouds, This is my beloved son who I'm proud of. Yeah, it's I the like digital
0: that. it's the digital declaration. Right.
1: <laughs> the virtual
0: one. But similarly then, just to pick up our story. And draw it out, do the parallels out, is that immediately after our honeymoon, and we had a very simple honeymoon just locally on one of the waterways, we hired a boat for 10 days. But after that honeymoon, we came back and Byron began work for a client in Brisbane in a fly-in, fly-out situation. And so it was kind of like going into a bit of a wilderness experience straight after the honeymoon. It was really lonely. We pined. I just remember just pining for him. And I'm sure he pined for me as well, but we never doubted each other's love because the memory of our public declarations on our wedding day was still so fresh and we were still sort of running pretty high on the, on the spiritual fruits of the actual exchange or the sacramental exchange that had been accomplished through our exchange of wedding vows on that day. It wasn't so much a time of temptation. It was a time of, it was a time of challenge and it was a wilderness in that sense. But we were just really, we just, it was just hard. We just pined for each other. We never doubted each other's love in that particular wilderness.
1: A year later, you then went to New York, Fran.
0: Yes, Yes, we did. We went to New York. So after our first year of marriage here in Australia. Um, We took off for our big adventure overseas by an arranged transfer with his work. And it was a really exciting professional opportunity for him. And it should have been a great adventure, except when we got there, the same thing happened again. He was posted on a client that was a post-merger. And one half of the company was based in the countryside of the UK and the other half in the countryside outside of Philadelphia. So he spent the next nine months or so commuting from our home in Manhattan to the UK and down in Philadelphia, literally sometimes just flying straight overhead, not even stopping in New York to come and say hi. Really hard. I had never lived out of home. I never even had my own bedroom prior to getting married. So I was now in this strange city with no family and Byron, basically not around most of the time. And I did start to at that period, did start to down his love, that those temptations intensified I found when our relationship was already under stress or we were already distanced from each other due to travel. So there was a physical separation, the physical distance. That was when the temptation really started to doubt. The temptation came to judge each other and to withdraw further from each other, to kind of hold ourselves back or to be tentative with each other. So, you know, the reunions after these periods of separation. That so we didn't bounce back into that sense of familiarity and intimacy as quickly as we did in that first period. And I think looking back on it now through this lens, I think that's what was happening.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, like, during the first five years of marriage, that was the first year of marriage for you. That's a really critical time for most couples and where the data shows us that if a couple's going to split up, it's in those first five years or those early years. Yeah, 50% happen in those first five years. You know, in a similar experience with Joe, like he has a sales job as well that would take him to different states and countries for multiple days. It's funny, like, when he's gone for the first day or two, it's kind of like, oh, I can do my own thing, and I've got my own schedule, and I can, you know, go visiting or not have to, you know, be home at a certain time and to spend time with Joe. But by about the third, fourth, fifth day, then you start to get lonely, and as well, when he comes back home, you have to get back into the rhythm of living together as a couple. So, like, I'll set up new little systems or I'll buy something new and he'll come home and be like, what's this? And, like, I'm like, don't move that. <laughs> this is a new establishment in our home. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, you know, the longing for each other but then readjusting when they come back after a, a trip. And it doesn't always have to be the husband leaving. You know, we've got... Friends, who it's the the wife whose job takes her yep. takes her away from the family home, so yeah, increasingly so. And you know, in Australia, the sort of the fly
0: in, fly out or the drive in, drive out is pretty common. We've got a lot of mining communities and remote sort of uh, businesses established in remote part of Australia, and they rely on being able to bring people in from outside. So it's a very common experience, I think, for Australians. One of the things that I, have looking back now, I didn't realise at the time. But I'm recognizing the patterns of what we would call spiritual attack. Now a lot of people kind of get a bit anxious about when we talk about spiritual attack, and we think we're kind of getting a bit too fundamentalist. But this notion of spiritual warfare actually goes back, well, really to the time of Christ and before that. You can see it in the Old Testament scriptures as well. But you know, Christ's ministry, there was a lot of spiritual warfare going on, and in the early church as well. I want to kind of try and correct people's misunderstanding around is when we talk about spiritual warfare in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or friendships or a community or a working relationship or whatever it is, we're not implying that there's one individual or one group that's somehow evil or cooperating with evil very intentionally and the others are the good. So it's not like one party is good and the other party is evil. What I experience it as, it's sort of like a fog that descends between Byron and I, and it just obscures or distorts our vision so that really innocuous comments or gestures that we might do or or make or something a bit careless gets interpreted by the other through this kind of fog as a really hostile or profoundly unloving act by the other person. And so it's we're both good people. We're both sincerely trying to follow the Lord and, and sincerely trying to love each other. But those... Bumbles get interpreted by the other when we're under a spiritual attack much more readily as something of evil intent. And thoughts start to become suspicious. We start to make judgments, snap judgments about the other. We just assume that he said this or he did this, so that must mean that he doesn't love me or that he doesn't consider my needs or whatever it is. And so it's a really important principle, I think, to just allow for the fact that both be really good people, but when you come under attack, it's more like the attack happens. The the focal point is the mind. It's in the imagination. It's not necessarily a physical attack, but it's it's really over the battle of the minds and how our thoughts can be influenced to go in one direction or the other, a direction that's in a godly direction that recognises and sees the sincerity and the goodness of the other person or to be diverted and misinterpreted as, you know, hostility. Does that kind of, resonate or make sense to you, Laura?
1: Yeah, you become suspicious of the other person's motives, so your thoughts Mm -hmm. become suspicious instead of that was a mistake or that was a silly thing that was said or Mm
0: -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And
1: I would notice as well, Fran, before we would host an engaged couple in our home to go through the sponsor discussion questions with them as we accompanied them for marriage and prepared them for the sacrament, we would often have a disagreement or an argument before the couple would arrive and I was kind of thinking, oh, it's because I need to be more organized and make sure that any of those pressures of like making sure the bathroom's clean or making sure we've got snacks in the fridge for them. If I, if I get all of that right, then we won't have a little tiff before they come over. And no matter what I did, you <laughs> know, I would, it would still happen. And so we were sharing that with another sponsor couple. And when she shared to me that exact same thing happens to, to them. And she's like, Laura, you need to like make sure you're praying before the couple comes, because we recognize it to be a spiritual attack. You're about to prepare a couple for a sacrament, which is a sign of God's love, and the devil hates marriage, and he wants to, you're sticking your head out there, and he wants to, you know, stop you from doing the good work you're about to do. So as soon as she said that to me, I was like, my eyebrows raised, and I was like, wow, I'm going to view those periods and how I respond very differently now. And rather than seeing Joe as the just do what I say and put the teacups out on the coffee table the way I want it, you know, whatever the little tip was about, I'm I'm just like Joe's not my enemy. Joe is with me on this mission. We're working together on this project. He wants it to go just as smoothly as me. He's not trying to do it his way over my way, but, like, stop all those suspicious thoughts. You're under as you said, that fog, that spiritual attack is there. Ask yeah. the Holy Spirit to, to counter that. That's a great has example. Helped, Yeah, that has helped us a lot. Separate to the sponsoring, yeah. if we're having a fight now, I've noticed Joe's picked up on that as well and he's like, can we just pray? Like, let's stop fighting and just say a prayer because we, we could be under spiritual attack. Yeah. So yeah. it's so good to be aware of that. It is. Look, for years, like we did maybe 70 or 80 marriage weekend marriage
0: seminars, over twenty-five years or more, it became so routine that in the weeks immediately before, that we would have calamities. Kids would get sick, things would go wrong at work. It would take Byron away. We'd be struggling to get our talks finished, or uh, you know, we we're tense with each other. That we just, as a routine, we just said, "Weekend coming, need to start praying for, for protection." Um, and we'd usually go to St. Michael. Um, we're going to talk a bit more about him in a bit, but it was so predictable. I mean, I guess if you were to do a statistical analysis, I think you'd see that it actually is, uh, the devil really does target marriage, not just our own marriage, but when we're, particularly when we're going to put ourselves out there to help other marriages, he just wants to just derail it.
1: I wonder as well if getting to Mass and, you know, all the dramas parents have with kids trying to get them in the car, somebody's lost a shoe, causes us to be late for Mass. It's
0: all, yeah. And getting to reconciliation. That's the other time I really noticed, the spiritual attack. It's like all the excuses start coming to my head. Oh, no, the queue's going to be too long or father will be tired or it's going to be too hot in the confessional. I'm going to have a hot flush. I've had that happen. It's like being in the fires of hell. I'm (laughs) trying to save my sins. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, maybe too much information for our listeners there. It might be time for a break. And on that note, we'll be
1: back soon. The Marriage Kit by Smart Loving is an online course for married couples wanting a lasting, passionate relationship. The course will allow you to grow in your understanding of each other and strengthen your bond with thought-provoking insights and practical skills. Research shows that relationship education can help you and your spouse improve your communication and conflict resolution skills, strengthening your relationship and reducing family breakdown gift certificates for the marriage kit are also available if you would like to purchase the course for a friend or family member and their spouse visit smartloving.org forward slash marriage kit Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Smart Loving Conversations on Radio Maria Australia. We've been talking about marriage in the wilderness and discussing how our marriage and yours can come under spiritual attack and temptation. Now it's time to get practical in discussing how can we respond to these attacks. Yeah, so our practical takeaway today is basically praying to St. Michael. But just a little bit
0: of history first for our listeners. So St. Michael the Archangel is the leader of all the angels and of the army of God. He has four main responsibilities or offices, according to the church, and um, as we know from Scripture and Christian tradition, the most important of which is to combat Satan and to escort the faithful to heaven at their hour of death and to defend the church. He appears in Scripture about five times, a couple of times in the book of Daniel, uh, once in Jude, and he also appears in the book of Revelation. In every instance, he's doing battle, with a dragon or an enemy. And the dragon, of course, is symbolic of the devil. He's popular among a number of saints. Sir Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, recommended the invocation of St. Michael at times of temptation and sorrow. And he says, quote, whenever any grievous temptation or vehement sorrow oppresses you, invoke your guardian, your leader, cry out to him and say, Lord, save us lest we perish. So good recommendation from St. Bernard, also apparently very popular with St. Francis of Assisi, who was very devoted to him, and he would fast for around 40 days from the Feast of the Assumption on August 15th to St. Michael's Feast Day, which is on September 29th. He shares that feast day with the other archangels. Some Franciscan communities still continue to this day to observe this period from August 15th to September 29th as St. Michael's Lent as a time of fasting and prayer sort of like a mini Lent. And I counted the days. It's actually about 46 days, I think, which, again, if you take out the Sundays, which are often kind of little mini reprieves, little mini days of resurrection and celebration, uh, you end up with the 40 days. The prayer itself has an interesting history. I think it's attributed to Pope Leo the Thirteenth, who added it to the Leonine prayers in 1886. And although these prayers are no longer recited after Mass as they were until 1964, Pope John Paul II has encouraged the Catholic faithful to continue to pray it, saying, quote, I ask everyone not to forget it and to recite it to obtain help in the battle against the forces of darkness. End quote. I think St. John Paul II particularly because of his history in communist Poland, he was very attuned to the spiritual warfare and the forces there. Yeah. Like any novena, novenas to St. Michael can be prayed on nine consecutive days. So that's just a little bit of the background. I mean, the the story actually, there's a little bit more to it, which can be quite fun, so I might just share it. The story goes, it's sort of a little bit in the sort of the legendary space rather than it's not official teaching or anything, but the legend kind of goes that in 1886, Pope Leo the XIII was praying at Mass in his private chapel and that he apparently had a profound vision. There were several reports say that he had a visible change, came over his face, and one of them claims that his face was pale and fearful. A cardinal at the time, he knew the Pope's private secretary, is reported to have said that Pope Leo the XIII truly had a vision of demonic spirits who were gathering on the Eternal City, that's Rome. From that experience comes the prayer which he wanted the whole church to recite, and there were some embellishments that came over time. Some people said that he had had a vision of Jesus having a conversation with Satan about attacking the church, a bit like in the book of Job, where there's that in the beginning of it there's this conversation between God and Satan, and God allows Satan to attack Job. So that's a little bit it's popular legend, but it's kind of you're sort of part of that sort of history or folklore, if you like, around. The St. Michael Prayer. The St. Michael Prayer just goes, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, a prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls amen
1: it's a hard one to learn actually and to recite it is. without a prayer card because of that the language but whenever i pray this prayer i just see in my mind's eye saint michael the archangel i think because i had a prayer card when i was younger yeah. and i just see him with his big wings and his shield and his sword if i've prayed that prayer it takes away the fear of like be not afraid Saint michael's got this he's yeah. done it before he's cast out satan from heaven before He's going to do it again for your particular intention that you're praying about now. And I really have felt not overwhelmed that I'm this little vulnerable human mm-hmm. soul, you know, with these spiritual problems that just seem too so overwhelming. It's like, no, I have this mighty angel, Michael, with me, and so does everybody who invokes mm-hmm. the prayer. So I just love that. Visually seeing it in my mind's eyes has just been really powerful for me.
0: He's always... Showed with armour
1: and often a sword or
0: a, or a lance, often with a dragon at his feet writhing and carrying on. But it's actually a great comfort to know that you've got someone like St Michael on our side. And I guess learning the prayer of my heart is a bit of a tongue twister. You don't need special words. We can just invoke him. We can use our own words to just invoke St Michael whenever we need him, uh, whenever we experience some temptation. And I guess it works Because we're giving permission to God and to His messengers, which is just what angel means by the way, it just means messenger, to influence us. And I think we often fall into the mistake that we think we've got to do it all ourselves and do it under our own power, uh, which is impossible. We can't, we can't, we need a saviour, we can't save ourselves. So when we're invoking the saints to assist us and to intercede for us to God, we're really leaning into God and His grace and relying on Him and that's that kind of spiritual attack, if you like, needs to be battled with spiritual weapons. If we try to do it under our own human powers, we're almost certainly going to fail. So, you know, I'm praying a novena to St. Michael at the moment for our city of Sydney and for all our brothers and sisters who have been ensnared by promises of, you know, sexual fulfilment apart from the plan of God. And our city of Sydney is in particular need at the moment. So I and a bunch of other colleagues are praying that novena.
1: Yeah, I love the idea of a novena to St. Michael. And and I like the idea as well, Fran, if you're in the moment of you're under temptation and you can't remember the exact words, make up your own and send me St. Michael in this time of temptation and help me, he'll be there with you. So with that practical take home, let's take another break before we come back to answer some listeners' questions. Smart Loving Fertility. There's a smarter way to manage your fertility, one that works with your body, your marriage, and your faith. Smart Loving Fertility is an online course based on the Symptothermal method. It incorporates a unique blend of scientific insights with relationship frameworks and Catholic theology to foster intimacy and help you flourish as a couple. The course will allow you to grow closer as a couple to raise a family and keep your marriage vibrant. Manage your fertility naturally, confidently, and with more freedom. Visit smartloving.org forward slash fertility. Gift certificates are also available if you want to purchase the fertility course for a friend or family member. Hi there, friends. This is Radio Maria
0: Australia, and it's time for Smart Loving Q&A. We get questions every day from wives,
1: husbands, and couples
0: from around the world. And so, Laura, what have you got for us today?
1: We have a really great question from a wife, and this is what she says. I believe my husband is a hoarder. Our garage is packed with stuff, and we cannot walk through it. He has his own room, which also has stuff piled high up and blocking the windows. And there is more stuff in the dining room, living room, sunroom, backyard, etc., If I touch his stuff, he gets quite upset, and when I ask him to clear out the family space, he ignores the request about 90% of the time. It's very difficult for him to toss anything out, even if it's boxes, receipts, or a broken washing machine, and it makes it so much harder to clean. I wish I could help him. I'm really sad. We just wanted to. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds like a pretty bad case, doesn't it? Thank you to the wife who wrote in this question. Look, I guess my first... Comment would be, it sounds like your husband needs professional help. And Fran will talk a little bit more about hoarding and that it's linked with anxiety of letting things go. But I guess my, my advice would be, rather than you being against him and he's the problem and this thing, his hoarding is the problem, I reckon just like pray over him, with him, um, let him verbally hear your prayers. So holding your hands over his head and saying something like, thank you for the gift of my husband, Holy Spirit, give him the grace to let go of the clutter and the broken things that we don't need. Just let him know that that you, God, will provide for his needs, that he doesn't really need to hang on to broken things that are cluttering our life. Let him know I'll always love him and be there for him. And where he's weak, I'll be strong. And where I am weak, he is strong as my husband. So just by doing that, I think it would reassure him that, the hoarding is the problem that you are together confronting rather than he is the the source of the problem. You're praying over him and, like, asking Holy Spirit to help each other to get rid of the clutter, which will allow you to live your lives freely and Mm. bring in more joy and space to live. Yeah, that's good. I think often
0: when couples face situations like this or you know they've had an argument or disagreement about something one or the other is doing that might be a little bit dysfunctional we often let that problem get in between us as husband and wife and it's a really bad kind of strategy because it identifies the other spouse as the problem rather than we have a problem and we put the problem in front of us and together we unite to to tackle the problem Uh, is a much better kind of framework or mental image to kind of adopt into our way that we approach this i love the way your suggestion of praying over him because it really just reminds us that god sends us to be a messenger of love to our spouse and you know the spouse can be the wife of the husband can be a really powerful avenue for the lord's grace to come to that person that's struggling with something here just about the anxiety usually hoarding is a sort of a variation of an anxiety it's sort of in that. I think they'd probably put it in the category of a, sort of an obsessive-compulsive disorder of some sort. But in some ways, all of us, suffer from inappropriate attachments to some degree. And it's kind of natural in some ways to have a desire to protect that, which is valuable to us. That's good instinct. So if we've got something that's an expensive item that would, you know, cost a lot to replace that we need, like our car um, or our computer, I mean, obviously we take reasonable steps to protect that. We lock our car. We lock the doors of our house at night so that intruders can't come in and help themselves to our wallets and our computers and things like that. Or even just thinking about children. We we hold the hand of our child when we're crossing the road. That's a protective kind of gesture. Those kind of measures are, are kind of appropriate to a degree, but when they get extreme, they become, I guess, an expression of dysfunction and they impede our freedom. So if we are still holding the hand of our child when they're 21, we've got a problem. Actually, probably if we are still holding their hand at the age of 13, we've got a problem. You know, if we're, you're afraid to let go of anything, even the broken computers, <laughs> 10 of them stacking up. We're now tripping into hoarding. We're tripping into inordinate attachments, And I guess the spiritual part of that is thinking about how do those things give us security, emotional and, and spiritual security, that is perhaps displacing our reliance on God as our ultimate provider And so professional help can be really helpful, particularly if there's been some kind of traumatic history that might have been the initial trigger point for that can be really very helpful. But also the spiritual support through prayer and can also be really, really helpful. And again, not to just make it all about the other person, but to recognise that we all, to some degree, can have inappropriate attachments to things. It might not be physical things, it might be other things in our life, our social media unhealthy friendship and so on. So just just to kind of, I guess not to take a holy in the now, but to step into a space of, oh, where in my life is there a hoarder's mentality around something that I'm clinging to
1: and displacing God? From that space in my life. Yeah, wow. Thanks, Fran. Well, if you've got questions for us, you can contact us via the Radio Maria website or visit www.smartloving.org forward slash conversations. Now, before we sign off, we want to share a blessing with you, like we do each smart loving conversation. So, Fran, what's your blessing for our listeners this podcast? I just want to call out the Discerning Hearts
0: app. We'll put a link in the show notes. I downloaded it a few weeks ago. They've got lots of pre-recorded, um, stored things there. I'm listening to Father Timothy Gallagher unpack the spiritual exercises of St Ignatius, but they feature a whole lot of people that are experts in spiritual direction. Beautiful app. It's free, well worth dipping into and supporting them if you can financially. They do make a request for that, but it's free for anybody to download.
1: Beautiful. I'm reading Made for This, The Catholic Mum's Guide to Birth. That's been really good just to prepare spiritually mm. um, and mentally as well as physically for childbirth. And then I also mentioned we had many years of infertility, so a book that really helped me and blessed me during that time is called Under the Laurel Tree, Grieving Infertility with Saints uh, Joachim mm. and Anna. So I'll provide the link for you on oh, our smartloving.org awesome. forward slash conversations. Because mm. mm. we often
0: forget that... Joachim and Anna were elderly when they conceived Mary and there's so many many of the Old Testament couples Abraham and Sarah Elizabeth and Zechariah along with Joachim and Anna who really were in their elderly years before they conceived so that must be just such a lovely thing to be able to reflect with them and invite them into a space of support for couples who are experiencing infertility or subfertility.
1: yes Well, that brings us to the end of our time together, friends. You can find more information, including links to our blessings, our show notes, and more at smartloving.org forward slash conversations. That's www.smartloving.org forward slash conversations. We're Francine Parola and Laura Kane from Smart Loving, and we pray that you will be blessed in your walk with the Lord today, and we lift you up in all your intentions. To our patron saints, our lady undoer of knots, pray pray for for us. us. And St. John Paul II, pray for us. This is Radio Maria Australia. Goodbye.